0: Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 256. My name is Terry Frost and as Liz Baxter's Calcutta Plays, welcome to the show. Uh, This time around I'm doing two very different movies. First off I'm doing one of the classic alien films from 1949 which is Whiskey Galore starring Basil Radford, Joan Greenwood and Gordon Jackson. And then we move a little bit further down the line to 1961 for a public domain Western, which you can download for free off YouTube if you want to, called The Deadly Companions, starring Brian Keith, Maureen O'Hara and Steve Cochran. The interesting thing about this one is it's Sam Peckinpah's first feature film directing effort. So sit back and I'll get the contact details out of the way and we'll get the show started. Paleo Cinema Podcast is a podcast of old movie appreciations. There's only a couple of rules here. The first one is the movie has to be at least 20 years old, and it's a rule i break occasionally. And the second rule is I have to find some interesting things to say about it. Uh, Feedback's very important to the podcast, so you can offer it a couple of ways. You can offer some at feedbackpaleo at gmail.com. You can go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook. And also, or you can send me an owl if you went to Hogwarts. You can even support the podcast by going to patreon.com slash Cinema, and donating as little as $1 US per month. Just be aware with the podcast, I may swear occasionally, so you might not want to let your kids hear it if you don't want them to pick up filthy words with Australian pronunciation. So how's everyone been? Uh, sorry this one's late. It is a little bit late, but I do apologise. Things have been going on. There was Continuum, the National Science Fiction Convention, then I got a bug after that, and I wasn't feeling well, and life stuff and all that kind of thing. I've been watching a ton of stuff, but as far as content creating, I've, I've done the YouTube videos, which were fairly simple this time around, but I haven't really hit the podcast, so I abjectly apologize for that. Ah, So how have you been? Um, the weirdness of the 21st century continues, of course, all the crazy stuff that we Rail about on social media with such alacrity is continuing. Um, weird stuff's going on, and however we individually define weird stuff, we want it to stop. Uh, so I've avoided all that by watching a lot of stuff, which is never a bad thing. I binge some stuff on Netflix. Uh, there's a series called Agretsuko, which is about um, a Japanese woman working in an office, who also happens to be an anthropomorphized Red Panda, called Retsuko, who has a frustrating job. She works in an office, she feels she's not appreciated, she's in her mid-twenties, she doesn't have a boyfriend, everything's going wrong, and she gets out her rage by doing death metal karaoke. Uh, It doesn't run really long, I think there are about 15 episodes or something like that all up, but it really is engaging stuff and it, it talks to kind of real issues and frustrations that people have. Uh, there are people who torment her. There are people who mentor her. Uh, she has a couple of love interests and a guy at work is quite fond of her. So there's a lot of kind of stuff going on there and it's handled in a very amusing way. She lives in Tokyo and um, hangs out around Shibuya, which is kind of cool. And But it's got a universality that really does kind of work. So I recommend that one. I watched a movie, Lupin the Third: The Castle of Cagliostro, which is based on the manga by Monkey Puncher, uh, Japanese manga artist who died in April, and it's really great. Uh, Studio Ghibli did it, I believe, and um, it's a crazy action film. They've done a live-action Lupin the Third movie or two, which are also fun. But Lupin the Third is a kind of thief and a rogue. He's got a cool sidekick. And he goes to this weird European country, which is very, very small, called Cagliostro, to help a princess. So, yeah, that one's um, about 30, 40 years old now, but it's recommended as well. Um, I did re-watch one of the renowned Westerns as well, the Randolph Scott renowned Westerns that Bud Bedica did. A movie called Decision at Sundown, which is one of those kind of pared back renowned Westerns that have become rightly famous. And, yeah, that works too. It really does have that beautiful thing where you think you know where the Western's going, but the characters take it somewhere else. Really low budget, runs about 80-odd minutes, but it does ramp up the tension. It gives us characters we like. Um, Noah Beery Jr. plays his sidekick, and there's nobody really famous on the other side of things, but it mostly takes place in a town rather than out in the Alabama Hills where did a lot of the renowned Westerns, and it works. It's tight, it's concise, and it gives us characters who, within the constraints of 1950s Western cinema, really do feel, have, feel like they've got lives before the movie started, uh, which is something they have in com- common with uh, The Deadly Companions, the second movie I'm going to talk about tonight. Then Netflix made a Shaft movie, the fifth Shaft movie, in fact. The first one was Shaft. The second one was Shaft's Big Score. third one was Shaft in Africa. Then there was the one in 2000. I think John Singleton directed it. Then there was this one. And in between, there was a TV series with Richard Roundtree in it back in the 1970s. The less said about which, the better. Um, it's okay. If, you're li- if you like Shaft, it's got Samuel L. Jackson and Richard Roundtree in there as well. It's set in modern times. It's kind of okay and a bit of fun and a little bit meta and recursive and there are a couple of good action sequences in it but we didn't need it to be honest but if you're interested you're not going to be wasting your time watching it but I'd rather re-watch say Shaft's Big Score or even Shaft in Africa which cops a lot of shit but I kind of like so I watched that uh let me see what else I, I watched Spider-Man Far From Home which is the big temple movie du jour. We went to the first session at which it was showing in a, um, our local cinema. It was like 9.45 in the morning on a Monday morning for some reason it started on a Monday morning. And the cinema was about two-thirds full because it was the first day of school holidays and all the school kids were sleeping in that day. See it. If you're a Marvel fan at all, if you're a superhero fan at all, it works. Jake Gyllenhaal's good as Mysterio, the new villain. You've got Samuel L. Jackson back in there. You've got Tom Holland giving us the definitive um, Spider-Man, from my opinion. And you also get John Fabre coming back as Happy Hogan. Marissa Tomei playing Aunt May. And the action scenes really do work. And towards the end, as the action scenes escalate, the action scenes not only do the good versus bad stuff, but they also get the protagonist to learn more about himself. So yeah, it's, it really is a, a fine example of that kind of storytelling. It's a even hard to call it a movie because what it is is a episode in a series that's being played out on a big screen in a sense. Um, a saga. A, you can call it all sorts of different things. I just dropped my phone, but I'm going to ignore that. Um, two post-credit sequences. If you haven't seen it yet, the first one of which wants you to see the next. Wants you makes you want to see the next Spider-Man movie in about five minutes from now. The second one makes you think back and question certain things in the movie you just watched. Really cool, great value. They're worth staying for. They're not just, you know, a giant ant playing the drums. These are really kind of worthwhile post-creds and kind of hint deliciously at what might happen in the next phase ...of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Phase 4's just finished, they're into Phase 5... ...but it'll be really interesting to see what they do with this... ...and I'm there for the ride, I don't mind at all. The other thing of any note that I watched... ...is Fleabag... ...which is a British BBC um, Amazon co-production... ...written and starring uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge... ...as the titular character... ...a middle class English woman living in London... ...who is incredibly fucked up. She has a sister... Her father's still alive. Her mother died a few years ago. And she runs a hamster-themed cafe. Uh, Really funny, really transgressive, beautifully written, fantastically acted, and quite touching at times. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I think there are about eight episodes in two seasons over the last number of years. And it really does work. Um, Good, solid writing. Uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge is also going to be working on the script for the next James Bond movie to tart up the humor and the feminism in it um I like that I like that idea I think she's got the right sensibility for it I think she's um got a wicked sense of humor an incredibly fine writer I haven't seen Killing Eve her other series yet but I'm looking forward to binging that at some stage in the future and yeah it really does work there are some good episodes where an actor comes in and plays a character just for one episode and is given this fantastic dialogue and fantastic character to inhabit and just nails it. Um, it's a If you're into fine acting and, and fine writing in particular, you really should check out Fleabag. It's outside my normal comfort zone as far as viewing is concerned, but I really highly recommend it. By the way, I am sticking to the Richard Rule for the podcast, which says I have to start talking about the movie's Um, that are the centre of the podcast by the 15-minute mark in the podcast itself. And we are now about 10 minutes, 40 seconds into that. So just to go off subject just a little bit here, I'm in the man cave and I'm kind of looking around. And I thought, in March I cleaned up the man cave. I did total guts of it. Um, I hadn't been cleaned up in 10 years. Sally was very patient with me. And now I've got things just where I want them to be. And I don't spend much time in here unless I'm podcasting or editing a video. I'm really going to have to spend more time in my room. Um, I've got like shelves of records. I've got tons of books to read. I've got tons of things to play with. I should really spend more time in here. It really is kind of nice. I've done well with this. I'm kind of proud of what I've achieved in getting this fucking mess tidied up. And then I didn't do anything with it. I mean, I've got cool stuff here. I've got a rubber ninja star stuck up on a shelf here and um, lots of camera gear and lights and things like that. So I really should do something with this place. Really, it's um, it deserves to be inhabited, and I haven't done that very much. So yeah, maybe that's on my list. Spend a day in it. Maybe I can do that as a YouTube video. Let me know if you want to see me spend 24 hours, apart from toilet breaks, in the man cave and I'll put that up as a YouTube video. I might just do that, just for the fun of it, and kind of um, do something a little bit different with the YouTube channel. That'd, that'd be cool. I would enjoy that. Um, and I'm sure Sally would enjoy having the rest of the house to herself. But uh, let's see. Yeah, I'll do Israel Folau in two minutes, list. There's a rugby, there's a league player in Australia called Israel Falau. He's of Samoan ancestry, And he did this rant on Instagram about how gay people and adulterers and things like that were going to hell. And he got the sack from the football because it's against his $4 million contract for him to basically hate talk. So what's happened is he's got the sack and the Australian Christian lobby have raised $2 million for his defence fund legally so he can get his job back. Really interesting, too, because um, by best estimates, it's going to cost like $400,000 for the court case. And they've raised $2 million for him. And it's become this core celeb among what right-wing Christians um, about whether we need to protect religious rights in Australia as if there aren't already a number of laws that do that. And it's become a big fuss in the country and a big... It's the sort of thing that they're going to make a kind of TV miniseries out of at some stage in the future. And it's gone totally crazy. And our Pentecostal happy clapper, talking in tongues, Prime Minister, is supporting it. And basically, shit's got really weird. Um, but my, my spin on it is, if you can't prove your God exists, you don't deserve any special privilege. And in Australia, um, religious schools can sack gay, lesbian, bi, trans, intergender or asexual teachers with no other justification they can also expel students who are not kind of straight so all of that's become a big thing in this country and it's kind of disheartening at times but the good thing is that so many people have stood up against it it's reassuring there are a lot of loud voices on the other side but really the people with whom for whom I have any respect have spoken with incredible eloquence and compassion about that particular issue. So even when you think everything's going to hell and there's lots of shit, my simple piece of advice there is to listen to the wise voices. They'll be there, they'll be there. There'll be a lot of them. And they will turn you away from hatred towards something a little bit more like not acceptance of you know people who are intolerant. But at least be able to be against them without it fucking with your head. Anyway, we're at the 15 minute mark, and so I'm going to play you a little bit of Whiskey Galore from 1949, a wonderful Ealing comedy about whiskey.
1: Northwest of Scotland, on the broad expanse of the Atlantic, lie the lovely islands of the Outer Hebrides, small scattered patches of sand and rock rising out of the ocean. To the west, there is nothing except America. The inhabitants scrape a frugal living from the sea, the sand, and the low-lying hills of coarse grass and peat bog. A happy people with few and simple pleasures. The little island of Toddy is a completely isolated community, a hundred miles from the mainland a hundred miles from the nearest cinema or dance hall. Oh, but the islanders know how to enjoy themselves. They have all that they need. <laughs> but in 1943, disaster overwhelmed this little island. Not famine, nor pestilence, nor Hitler's bombs, or the hordes of an invading army, but something far, far worse.
2: There is no whiskey.
0: So that's the intro to Whiskey Galore, a 1949 Ealing comedy. 1949 was a crazy good year for Ealing. Within two months, they released three classic comedy films. In two months, there was Passport to Pimlico, Kind Hearts and Coronets, and Whiskey Galore. One studio, not a particularly big one, in England, releasing three movies which are all considered classics now. I don't think there's another studio in the history of cinema that's had a run like that. But anyway, the story of Whiskey Galore goes... It was based on a novel by Compton Mackenzie, who co-wrote the screenplay as well. But it's actually based on a true incident. On the 5th of February, 1941 a ship ran aground on the island of Eriskay in the Outer Hebrides. The ship's name was the SS Politician. Now, let's just stop things there. They named a ship the Sailing Ship Politician. Um, you wouldn't do that now. I'm not sure why they did. But it was called the SS Politician, probably because they couldn't call it the SS self-serving wanker. So the ship ran aground and was everybody got off the boat okay and they were looked after by the locals for a while because it takes a while in those days to get between these islands and you know, it's a non-trivial task to get a ship out in rough seas to an island. Now the locals learned from the crew of the politician that the ship was carrying a whole bunch of whiskey. Now the island had no whiskey because of wartime rationing So they periodically helped themselves to some of the 28,000 cases, 336,000 bottles of Scotch whisky before the winter weather broke up the ship. So all the islanders took their boats out there and loaded up with whisky. They wore women's dresses while they were doing the operation so that if they accidentally got smeared with oil from the leaking oil in the ship, they could get rid of the dresses and they wouldn't have incriminating oil all over their clothing. The local customs and excise guy, a guy called Charles McColl, was furious. He was totally pissed off with this. And he kind of went, you know, there was no duty paid on any of this whiskey, of course. So he ran around and searched people's places trying to find the whiskey. And the locals hid it in really clever places or just drank it. And so villages were raided and the farmers' crofts were turned upside down. And they caught plenty of people, local hand, you know, red handed, basically. Um, and in the Lochmady Sheriff's Court, a group of guys from Barra pleaded guilty to theft and were charged between three and five pounds each. Customs and excise keys, and McColl was really pissed off with this because it was a fairly light fine. And he was one of those sort of bastards who were like that. The estimates were that the locals got 24,000 bottles of whiskey off there. And so McColl, the arsehole, was applied for a grant and was permitted to blow the ship up so that nobody else could get whiskey from it. So eventually he did, and um, one of the guys of the island, a guy called Angus John Campbell, said, dynamiting whiskey, you wouldn't think there'd be men in the world so crazy as that. So Compton Mackenzie, who was in the um, Home Guard on the island at the time, wrote a novel called Whiskey Galore, which was released in uh, 1946. And it became the movie that he co-wrote in 1949 for Ealing. By the way, the reason I'm doing the movie for the podcast at this particular time is there's a thing going on at the moment called Dry July, where people who normally drink themselves into oblivion on a regular basis agree to not have any alcohol during the month of July and then donate money to charity, which is quite worthy of them. Now, I'm a very occasional drinker. I'm about three or four nights a week. I'll get a shot glass of scotch and just sip that in the evening. In the wintertime, I'll do that. In the summertime, I'll get some gin over ice. But I don't drink regularly or heavily. And it's only been on maybe one or two occasions this century that I've been drunk, even by the legal definitions. So here I am in dry July, sipping some scotch. I've got some monkey shoulder and talking about a movie about whiskey because I'm kind of thumbing my nose at the kind of people that drink too much. Anyway, in the movie, they changed the name of the ship from the SS politician, they actually upped the ante in the name of the ship and called it the SS Cabinet Minister. So I think it's the name that Compton Mackenzie gave it in his novel, but the story plays out very, very similarly. Um, we've got some interesting characters in the film. We've got Basil Radford playing Captain Paul Wa- Captain Paul Waggett, who is the Home Guard guy, who's a substitute for McCall, the ho- the Excise guy. He's um. Kind of a bit of a dad's army kind of guy. Basil Rathbone himself, really fine actor. Um, did a lot of movies with a, a guy called Norton Wayne. They kind of did a Bob and Bing kind of thing in the 1930s. He was trained at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts and was in the trenches in World War I. So you'll see if you watch Whiskey Galore that on his right cheek he's got a crescent scar which is from some shrapnel from um, a wound he got during World War I. Didn't stop his career at all. In some movies it's noticeable, in other movies it isn't. He's a bit like that other English character actor of the time, Leslie Banks, who if he was playing sinister would show one side of his face where he had some scars from the wall. And if he was playing a more or less benign character, you'd mostly see the other side of his face. It was kind of like a two-face thespian. Um, Not quite a Batman villain, but interesting the way he did it. It's like the Walter Brennan thing where Walter Brennan would say in or out when he was asked whether he'd take a role. And they go, what? And he go, do you want my teeth in or do you want my teeth out? Because he was either playing somebody like Stumpy in Rio Bravo or doing more serious roles, which he did earlier in his career, where he plays a more kind of sophisticated type of character. But I'm digressing a bit. So we've got Basil Radford in there playing the guy who's trying to find out what's going on with the whiskey. His name is Captain Paul Waggett. We have a a bunch of other people we know fairly well as actors. James Robertson Justice plays Dr. McLaren, the local doctor. He had a long career playing kind of pompous, bureaucratic and Navy types in movies. Um, Really, he was born in London, but he had Scottish heritage and he really embraced that. He had um, a farmer's croft up in the Highlands as his primary home at one stage and really embraced his ancestral heritage in a lot of ways. Gordon Jackson is in a very early role, playing George Campbell, one of the locals who's very much under his mother's thumb, but eventually finds himself during the course of the movie. Gordon Jackson, people remember from later things he did, like The Professionals and a bunch of other things. He was also in that movie that Robert Wagner did with Betty Davis, Madam Sin. He played a naval admiral in that, I think, just off the top of my head. We also have Joan Greenwood, who was the love interest in The Man in the White Suit, another Ealing comedy a couple of years later, with Alec Guinness, and who was married to Andre Morel, who was in a number of Hammer films. Um, People best know Joan Greenwood for doing the voice of the evil queen in Barbarella. Hello, pretty, pretty. And She's quite charming in this one as well. So the movie has a lot in parallel with Passport to Pimlico because Britain was suffering under post-war restrictions because they basically the country was broke and there was rationing until the mid-1950s. And so any movie where people were getting it over on the customs and excise people and enjoying some whiskey and being very sneaky and slightly dastardly about it and thumbing their nose at authority, was a subject matter that was going to play well with British audiences at the time. And indeed, with Australian audiences, we had some rationing ourselves. So at its heart, the movie's very anti-authoritarian, but it's anti-authoritarian in a very gentle and charming way. It's not taking up arms against people. There's one act of potential violence which kind of doesn't quite go the way it's expected to, but ends up having the correct result. And that's with a character called Sergeant Odd, played by Bruce Seaton, who is the love interest of the character Peggy, played by Joan Greenwood. Now, Bruce Seaton, interesting actor, really rough-looking, you know, he has kind of rough good looks about him, But and he played a kind of working-class British soldier in this. But his full name was Sir Bruce Lovett Seaton, 11th Baronet of Seaton, so he, he was landed gentry. But in this movie you don't see. This is before he actually got his baronetcy. And um, he's kind of an interesting character as well. Plays the role really well. He's got a nice touch with the comedy in the movie. And also a, a kind of, you know, he does have a nice chemistry as well. With Joan Greenwood in particular. Now the people of the village on the island of Barra have a problem well the island of it's called Toddy in the movie but it's actually filmed on the island of Barra because the shipwreck occurs on a Saturday night and just as they're about to take their boats out and start loading whiskey on them unfortunately it turns midnight and it's the Sabbath and nobody on the island breaks the Sabbath so they've got to sit there looking at 50,000 cases of whiskey all through Sunday while they all go to church and all act like good Christian people, until at the stroke of midnight, they can all piss off and get drunk. The book's actually got a bit more of this than the movie does, because on the book, there are actually two islands of um Toddy, North and South, I think it is, and one of them is Catholic and the other is Protestant, so there's a little bit of a dynamic there. For simplicity's sake, the movie doesn't do that, and I'm grateful too, there's enough character interaction without suddenly getting into a Christian warfare of some kind, and it was really interesting too, because they did film it out in the Outer of Hedbury's on the Island of Barra, as I mentioned. And all of the sets, and there were some sets done for it. They used a lot of locations, but they did need a few sets. So they had to schlep all the sets from London to the Island of Barra and put them up there. They hired some of the locals as extras. They brought the actors over, brought the camera crews. They had a first-time director, Alexander McKendrick, who previously worked for Ealing as a production designer. And he didn't quite know what he was doing, but he made the best of it. And um, that, that was just the start of their problems because it turned out it was going to be the wettest summer in years. And so they had to go really long on the production schedule. They went something like either twenty or £200,000 over budget, which was enormous. And the movie was delayed so that it fell into line in that 1949 release season with the other two films I previously mentioned. So, a lot of hassles with the production, but the movie itself is a lot of fun. By the way, um, a couple of years ago, they remade it with Eddie Izzard in the um, Basil Radford role, and it died in the arse. It just didn't play well at all. used a lot of the same jokes and a lot of the same tropes as the 1949 version, but it's one of those remakes that you think, no, it's totally unnecessary, you don't need to do this, and it's not going to end well. And that, in fact, is what occurred. If was brought to see when it came out, there were a couple of dissenting critical voices, one of whom said that the movie was, to paraphrase them, the biggest advertisement for whiskey in history, because you do see a lot of labels of a lot of different brands of whiskey. There's Johnny Walker, there's Haig, there's a few other ones that turned up. I don't think they had the idea of printing their own labels to kind of make them a bit generic. In fact, nowadays, there are companies that will do that for you and will have them ready, made for you to um, be able to not product place if you so choose when you're doing a major production. So why does Whiskey Galore work as a comedy? I've got to stop hitting the microphone when I make gestures. Um, Again, the first part of it would be that zeitgeist thing where hard times generate movies that are anti-authoritarian and in this case, in a delightful way, in a way that uh, probably made a lot of the audiences go out and see if they could find some whiskey after watching the film in the cinemas. And they have you know, enough of uh, a couple of love stories in there, quirky characters. There's a really interesting gentle scene where the Doctor, James Robertson Justice playing the Doctor, is visiting quite an old man who's bedridden and is obviously on his way out. And they're kind of discussing um, the fact that there's no whiskey on the island. And the guy's quite sad about it. And he's also sad because the doctors brought him some tobacco. This was the 1940s. And he broke his pipe and they can't get one because there are wartime restrictions and the shop doesn't have any pipes. And there's a lovely gentle scene there which doesn't relate too much to the rest of the film where the doctor gives this infirmed old guy one of his pipes, the pipe he's using at the moment, just as a little kind gesture. And that scene kind of works along with a few other scenes to give us the sense of the island as a community and the island as a place of sensible, gentle, compassionate people. And it's a, love, it's a beautifully written scene. I don't know whether it comes from the novel or not. I haven't got a copy of the novel. But it's one of those scenes which, at first, you think, cut that. But on second thought, you think, yeah, this is part of the atmosphere of the island. And it gives us a way to increase the audience being on the side of the islanders. Because we know them to be good people. And the people on the other side of things are kind of dumb and blustery. There's a whole bunch of customs and excise people that come through the town, almost like an invading army, which is um, probably the way the islanders see them and probably the way the islanders saw it on airscape when they had all their customs and excise people come in real life in 1941. So that's one part of it. The other part would be it's got some great music which is adapted from traditional Scottish tunes and so you get a really nice kind of atmosphere there. There's a couple of parties where a couple of people get engaged and there's some dancing and things like that in there. Done on fairly small um, other sets or places in the town because these islands don't have a lot of infrastructure and a lot of large areas. So the parties are in a fairly small tavern. And there's also the beautiful locations. There are some uh, bits on the hills and the moors and along the beaches on the island which are beautifully done, even though Sandy McKedrick was a first-time director. I think there are some scenes there where he uses the locations and sets the people in the locations really, really well. Um, Michael Balcon, the uh, producer at Ealing, wasn't happy with the first cut he saw of the film, but I think that there are some shots in this film that are really beautifully lyrical and kind of reminded me, in some small way, of of later films like James Lean's Ryan's Daughter. It's got that kind of windswept countryside feel about it, and that works to kind of give us that that strong sense of the island as an insular location and being a kind of a little bit away from the world. It really does work well to kind of help with that. It's a charming film. I picked it up. um, There was a two-for-$20 deal going down to JB Hi-Fi, and I had $20 on me, and I saw Whiskey Galore there and picked it up, and I also picked up a copy of Candyman on Blu-ray. So it was one of those serendipitous discoveries, and I thought, yeah, that's the perfect film I want to talk about. It's Dry July, and suddenly, not having seen it there before, at the top of the pile is a copy of Whiskey Galore. So I went with it. So just to summarise, um, it's a good solid-eatling comedy. It's in that kind of pantheon of things like The Man in the White Suit, and the two movies I mentioned previously, Passport to Pimlico and Kind Heights at Coronets, and a bunch of others. It's a particular kind of comedy that they did so incredibly well in those days, often with fairly limited resources, but with some of the best actors and some of the best support people in the world. Um, at the same time, of course, Ealing had a unit with Harry Watt over here in Australia, making movies like The Overlanders and Eureka Stockade. So there really were an international film company in a lot of ways. And we're producing a really entertaining product, mostly for the British Empire at the time. But, of course, everybody these days can enjoy them, and that in itself is a good thing. Anyway, I'm going to take a break now, and when I come back, I'm going to talk about a quirky little film, which I kind of like more than I thought I would. The Deadly Companion starring uh, Maureen O'Hara, Steve Cochran and Brian Keith and directed by the great Sam Peckinpah let
1: me know when that Yankee's patient runs out this patient never does wear out
0: That uh, pretty redhead just went in and holds it today's
1: Sunday. What do you uh, lovely creatures feel about that?
2: I think it's Monday.
1: Get your horse. Hmm? Get you. Billy! Hey, Billy! Yellowlegs ready! that Yankee
0: shooting arm. Somebody getting ducked. He's dead. I wasn't sure I'd like the Deadly Companions because it popped up on YouTube and I'd seen a whole bunch of cheap DVD copies of it around. I knew Maureen O'Hara was in it because of the cover of the thing. But I didn't kind of you know, really register it as a Western worth looking at until I was getting bored on Tubi the other night and I watched it and it's surprisingly quite good. As i said a couple of times so far, it was the first movie directed by Sam Peckinpah who'd previously worked with Brian Keith in a TV series called The Westerner, which ran about 13 episodes and some of them were really well regarded. It's got a bit of a cult following now. Have to find a copy of it at some stage. So the movie stars Maureen O'Hara as Kit Tilden, a dance hall woman who's got a young son. Uh, Brian Keith plays Yellowleg, a criminal drifter who teams up with a couple of southerner drifters. Steve Cochran's character, Billy Kepl- uh, Keplinger, and Chill Wills playing a guy called Turk. They're basically the four people who are the main part of the movie. Uh, Strother Martin turns up as the parson. Uh, A character actor called Will Wright turns up as a doctor who does a bit of a diagnosis on some problems Yellowleg's having. And for the most part, the rest of the people aren't too important to the narrative. Uh, The movie starts out with Yellowleg rescuing Turk from a bit of a situation he's got for having five aces and a deck of cards. Billy comes along and Yellowleg ends up being kind of the leader of the band because he's the one with the brains. Billy is just basically... Um, a ladies' man, and Turk is a very unsuccessful gambler who cheats at cards and gets into trouble doing so. They decide to go to another town, which, as Yellow League, the Brian Keith character says, has an old sheriff and a new bank. So they're, they're going to rob the bank. Um, now, Yellow League is on a mission to find somebody, and we don't find out who that person is until further down the line, I'm not going to spoil that part for you. So they get to town, Yellow Leg goes and sees the doctor, played by Will Wright, and, because he's got a um, musket ball in his shoulder, which is affecting his aim with a gun. It's tucked right into the shoulder blade and it affects the arm muscles. The doctor says he's probably going to be laid up for about 10 days to get that fixed. And he says he doesn't have time to get it done right now. But the doctor recognises him from another town and recognises him as a person who was injured and had someone attempt to scalp him in the other town and uh, became quite famous because of that. He says, you don't know what you're talking about, it's not me. But later on, when there's a church service in a saloon that the three of them go to, Yellow Leg won't remove his hat. Now, the town is really isolated. They don't even know which day of the week it is. Some people say it's Sunday, some people say it's Monday. They've just basically lost track Of time, which is something that did happen in some Western towns apparently, and is that little kind of detail you get that gives a bit of verisimilitude to a a movie like this. So while Moreno Harris, Kit Tilden, goes to the church service in the bar, a lot of the other bar girls, a lot of the other saloon girls, and basically the sex workers of the town, say it's Monday and start to go into the brothel with Billy until Yellowleg calls him and says they've got to go rob the bank because the bank is run by Monday people who say it's Monday. They're about to rob the bank when two guys walk out and start shooting. They've already robbed the bank. And so they start shooting at people. Uh, Billy takes down one of them and Yellowleg shoots at the other one. But accidentally, because of his arm injury, he's aim's off and he shoots and kills Kit's son. And this is the pivot point for him as a character. He's uh, he, yeah he's attracted to her because she's played by Maureen O'Hara and there's that. But Yellow Leg is the one of the three who has any kind of moral compass. And Kit says that she wants to bury her son alongside his father at a town called Sorringo, which is now deserted and located in Apache territory. So it's very dangerous to get there. So she takes off in a buckboard with a coffin on the back to take her son to be buried with his father. Yellowleg offers to help, but she rejects his offer for fairly obvious reasons, and Yellowleg then gets himself, Billy, and Turk to follow her to make sure that she isn't attacked by Apaches or anybody else while she's on her way to bury her son. Now, Billy's got his own agenda for Kit because basically he's a rapey kind of guy which is a good time to talk about Steve Cochran, the actor, because Steve Cochran had a kind of dodgy life and the dodgiest death of any Hollywood actor since F.W. Murnau. Now, he, um, he was quite popular with the ladies. He had a hell of a lot of affairs. Mamie Van Doren has a lot to say about him in her autobiography. And he also was in trouble with the cops a lot over assault and reckless driving charges and things like this. He died on June 15, 1965 at the age of 48. So he was in his yacht off the coast of Guatemala and he got some kind of a lung infection and died on his yacht. He was on his boat with three Mexican girls aged 14, 19 and 25. But here's the problem. He dies on the boat. The boat's off the coast of Guatemala. The girls don't know how to operate the boat. So his body was on board for 10 days with these panic-stricken Mexican women until it drifted ashore in uh, Port Champurico in Guatemala and they found it, the boat with a dead Hollywood movie star and three quite distraught Mexican girls on it. Uh, there was talk of foul play, but they never found any evidence of so it. Chances are it was just a lung infection that um, got away with him and uh, he died. On a boat with three women, uh, really a weird kind of celebrity death. That one. He was a pretty good, tough guy actor. Um, you know, it would have been good, better if he had antibiotics on his boat, but um, that's the story of Steve Cochran. About four years after this movie was made, but that's the setup for the plot of the film, and for me, it works really well. Really low budget. It was produced by. Um, Maureen O'Hara herself to give her a, give her a vehicle to work with. She'd just been in The Tender Trap, the Disney movie, with Brian Keith. And so she hired him to play the male lead in the movie. And Brian Keith, hell of an underrated actor. Everything I've seen him in, he's been great in. Um, he, he was good in Krakatau, East of Java, which I talked about in the last episode. He's really good in this, and... When I watched this movie, I thought this is a bit reminiscent of something I know and I like a lot. And what it is reminiscent of is the Bud Bedeker, Randolph Scott, renowned westerns. It's a western that isn't terribly long. It's fairly small budget, fairly small cast, character-driven rather than action-driven. And it's got an unusual plot structure. Now, they had a hell of a time getting this movie financed ended up costing $300,000, and they had, uh, Maureen, Ahara, Maureen Ahara and her production company had a lot of trouble getting the money for this because of the subject matter of a widowed woman who was a sex worker taking the corpse of her child across the countryside. It wasn't the sort of thing that was going to, they thought, play well with an audience. It turns out it didn't. They made the money back, but not much beyond that and the movie fell into the public domain when the production company folded and the rights got a bit vague and um, it's now available in fairly good quality copies on YouTube and other streaming services. If you can find a torrent of it, download it without any guilt. Now, for me, it works because the action is pretty good. I think there are a couple of slow bits. There's a couple of places where you see that um, Peckinpah is quite new at at, um, making movies. He'd done a lot of episodic TV and a lot of the um, blocking for the film looks a bit like something from TV. There's also some problems too because they'd shot a lot of it on location. In fact, all of it on location. And some of the locations in old Tucson town, which was a ranch out near Tucson, were a bit tight. So some of the angles they covered weren't, um, it would have been nice if they could have been a bit further back from the action, but the locations didn't permit that. Maureen O'Hara didn't like Sam Peckinpah because he wasn't nice to animals. They actually shot a snake in one scene in the movie. And you see a quick shot of that, and she said he just sat around his director's chair playing with his groin. Whether that's true or not, I don't know, but it doesn't sound totally out of character for him to do that. But the interesting thing is that it's not Kit's story. She's the person to whom the tragedy occurred. She's the person who lost a child, and yet she's very much a secondary character in there. Um, there are a couple of bits where Billy tries to attack her. There's a growing sense of kind of affinity between her and Yellowleg, the Brian Keith character. But it's not her story. It's a redemption arc for him. Now, this is a Western, and not a what they used to call a woman's film. But it's interesting that the person who you know caused the film to be made in the first place is playing a role that's kind of secondary now having said that and I acknowledge that that is fucked it really is a good redemption story brian keith was the child of actors um he's and then he went in the marines during world war ii got a bit of a reality check there and came back and he was a cra- yeah a crazily underrated actor if you watch him in this film it's all internalised. It's all kind of less is more. And he does that really well. It's all in the little hand movements and the gestures and looks and, and things like that. There's some really fine acting there which lets the audience know what he's feeling but lets them fill in the blanks themselves and, and gives the audience a little bit of homework there in the best possible way. His character is damaged he's been tracking this person down for five years and put everything else on hold he's got a disfiguring scar on his forehead it's not too much of a spoiler to say that because it's in every bit of the stuff you get about the film and even though the scar we see finally isn't that extensive in a cultural context it's very much um, an important thing because scalping was something that uh, of course The white men started, but then the Indians took up in revenge. The the Native American First Nations people took up in revenge and it's seen almost as a mark of shame, so he keeps his hat on. And the fact that he's been travelling and tracking down this person for five years means that the musket ball he got in his shoulder during the Civil War hasn't been dealt with. And so it leads to a weakness which is... Changed the life of a woman and killed a child, and so all all these things for the character of Yellowleg come together in a redemption arc, where he decides that even though she doesn't want him to, he's going to look after her so that she can bury her child next to the child's father, and that's very kind of Bud Beticke kind of thing. It reminds me a little bit of the redemption arc in Decision at Sundown the Bud Bedica, Randolph Scott Western, which is one of the lesser, one of the renowned Westerns. But it's still interesting because things don't play out the way you you think they're going to. You go into this movie at the start thinking it's going to be one thing, it becomes another. And then it becomes a character study in some ways, even while there's this kind of travelling to this dangerous town where the um, First Nations people are going to attack you if you even get close to them doesn't have a very nuanced view of First Nations Americans, I've got to say that. But given that fact, there's some really interesting stuff that happens when they reach the town. And it's not just a shootout, though. There is one of those. And the shootout plays with an appropriate level of chaos, because there are too many Westerns that you see where things... Bullets go exactly where people want them to and shots come from places that are expected. And this movie doesn't do that. It adds a certain chaos to the uh, action scenes, which really works tremendously well in the narrative structure of things. Plus, there's a point at which the rapport between Kit and Yellow Leg gets acknowledged and there's a kind of ray of hope for the both of them. But then as they go to bury the child, something, the worst possible thing to happen, happens. Not that the kid's body falls out of a coffin or anything like that, but I'm being vague deliberately. But there's a moment where you go, oh, fuck. Oh, fuck. As um, they're about to complete the mission. And I like that. I like the fact that it's kind of got that escalation and the complication that happens is one that, um, it's kind of believable and is plausible and is the kind of thing that randomness does to people unexpectedly. And I, I really do like that. I mean, th- there's so much thought gone into this script. It was turned into a novel, and the novel was much more popular than the movie itself because uh, Westerns were really popular in written form in those days. But I, I do like the, um, I like the character arc of Yellowleg. I like the character arc of Kit who lives life on her own terms because she has a child to raise. And so she becomes a dance hall girl, which, is, of course, we know is a euphemism, so that she can you know, basically feed and clothe and keep a roof over her child's head. And then something drastically horrible happens. And she uses that same determination that she showed in making the hard choice to go into a certain occupation in order to do the right thing by her child. Um, there is a kind of strong thread there. And then there's Yellowleg's redemption arc. Billy and Turk are a little less nuanced as characters. They've kind of gone um, too far into the darkness. And so there's no moral ambiguity about those characters, which again is a little bit of a Bedica trait. There's always characters that are dark reflections of protagonists. And in a sense, Billy and Turk are dark reflections of Yellowleg in this film. And it, it I really love the fact that it plays a bit like a Bud Bedica western because I've seen all of those and I love all of them, even the lesser ones. But getting another one that's in the same kind of thematic area and is that kind of compressed and distilled essence of a western really worked for me, even though there are a few scenes, there's a couple of sunset scenes when they could have used a little bit of a lighter or reflector to help with um, showing the characters against the sunset. But they made that choice not to do it in this film, and maybe that's a kind of limitation on Peck and Parr at this stage of his career. But it does really work, and I'm surprised because um, there are a lot of public domain westerns and other things out there. There's the shooting, early Jack Nicholson effort, which is not that good. There are a whole bunch of other ones. So when you're kind of delving into public domain Westerns, you don't expect to find a hidden gem. And that's exactly what's happened with this film for me. And yeah, hooray, this is the kind of stuff I live for. And um, I've also one of the other things I've just found out, which is kind of interesting, is uh, Republican Pictures, their back catalogue, is being restored by the Museum of Modern Art in New York and it's being released in various formats um, over the next few years. So there are a whole bunch of Republican, Republic sorry, B Pictures, Republic Studios B Pictures, which are being restored and, and tarted up and brought out for people to enjoy. And so I've um, located a, a few of those that have been released so far and look forward to more of them. Because for me, B Pictures is where I started as a, a film buff, going to those Saturday matinees in Liverpool when I was a little kid. You didn't get first run pictures. They were the ones that they showed at seven thirty at night. You got big pictures. You got whatever the studios were putting out to the distributors here in Australia. So you got the Matt Helm westerns, and you got the kind of more dead than alive with Clint Walker and um, Vincent Price in it. You got those cut kind of, You got Elvis's western Charo and things like that. But you didn't really get kind of top tier pictures. So all of the movies that I saw in the cinemas in my youth, with the possible exception of a few Tenpo movies like Mary Poppins, were inevitably B pictures, so that's the, you know, the way I, I was weaned into cinema. And so I've got a, a great love for them, and I, I like them a lot, even though I do like larger pictures and more important pictures. And when I finish this podcast, I'm going to be looking for Akira Kurosawa movies and doing a YouTube video about those. But Big pictures do have features of interest and there are times when if you watch them with care and with affection, you can be crazily rewarded in that viewing by finding something that you didn't know existed that because of its history is available for free which is a really nice piece of entertainment and The Deadly Companions turned out to be that for me and I've thought about it in a couple of days since I've seen it and the thoughts have been increasingly positive I've kind of grown a bit of an affection for it which is kind of cool but without further waffling that's about it this time around check out The Deadly Companions check out Whiskey Galore if you can I've still got a little bit of whiskey left in the glass here which is nice for me um, thank you for listening and thank you again to the Patreon supporters as well. I will be on a more regular schedule from here on in. There was a bit of a hiatus there with various shit going on. But that's now past and I'll be back on the fortnightly you know, the weekly alternating between Martian Driving Podcast and this podcast. So fear not, you'll be able to hear my voice on a regular basis. Um I'm gonna find a piece of music to put after the credits, which I always put in the podcast to honour the Patreon supporters of the podcast and anyway in the meantime look after yourselves watch some good films watch some bad films find the hidden gems that bring you to light and i'll be back soon with something else so here are the credits and after that i will find an obscure and wonderful piece of music to throw at the end kind of like a post-credits sequence in spider-man far from home look after yourselves i'll see you again soon here are the credits for Paleo Cinema podcast and Martian Driving podcast done in the style of movie credits to honour the people who support this podcast. Thank you to Tom, the focus puller, Sarah, the special effects technician, Ian, the caterer, Grant, the Technicolor consultant, Claire, the script doctor, Gary, the prop master, Morris, the musical director, Jan, the dialect coach, Arm and our key grip, Matt, the rattlesnake wrangler. Elaine, our scientific advisor. Julia, our casting director. Chris, our camera operator. Christopher, our gaffer. Miss Jane, our wardrobe mistress. Tansy, our foley artist. Alyssa, our location scout. Mark, our second unit director. Paul, our special makeup effects director. Tammy, the donut wrangler. Tim, our New York unit director, Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor, uh, Steve Sullivan, our director of monster effects, Dylan, our goat wrangler, Eric, our set security lead, Richard H., our set photographer, Mark D., our extra, and David L., our extra, Kerry H., who is the accountant, and our newest supporter, Gary J., who is a CGFX technician? So, thank you very much to all of the supporters of the podcast. I really appreciate you dipping into your purses and helping out with the podcast.